0: Welcome to The Sandbox. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Dave. So we've been talking for a while about how we were going to hopefully share an interview with you guys today uh, with Shane Claiborne. Shane Claiborne. We've actually been talking about it for a couple months, I think. Yeah. And so here's the thing about computers is that occasionally things crash.
1: And sometimes things don't get saved.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that was not quite the problem this time around. But uh, unfortunately, we did uh, did have some computer issues. And so we're going to be bumping that episode back a little bit. Uh, but we do want to let you know that if you've been looking forward to that, you can definitely hear it in the next uh, next few episodes. Um, but for today, I know we've got a couple of quick announcements before we get too far in today. What's, uh, what's coming up, Dave? Well, we've got this uh,
1: event coming up on May 7th. It's our... Live event with Drew G. I. Hart. He'll be talking with us about his new book, "The Trouble I've Seen," changing the way the church views racism.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a it's a pretty important conversation. I think mm. it's uh, obviously a lot of us are thinking about it and talking about it. Uh, just kind of in our normal conversations. And I'm excited to, to hear what he has to, to share with us. Um, also, just so you know, we do live stream these events. So you can, you know, if you're in Rochester, Minnesota, you can join us. Uh, we're downtown at Studio 324. Or you can watch from literally wherever you are in the world. So one way or another on May 7th, be sure to make a plan to join us.
1: We And we do have people tuning in from... All over the world, we have different, several different countries have checked in, and and they've been watching, and they're probably watching in their pajamas, sitting on a couch somewhere in the comfort of their own homes, and it's pretty fantastic.
0: I'm not going to lie, that's what I would be doing if I wasn't there. If I wasn't hosting
1: on stage, uh, otherwise, that that would get pretty awkward, right? (laughs) I'm
0: I'm glad you're not in the PJs. (laughs) There it is. You're welcome. Um, Yeah. So for today, uh, you have to say we are are very excited to share our conversation with uh, Nicole Dean. Uh, We had the chance to meet up with her on our road trip last summer. Uh, When we spoke with Nicole, she was working with Planting Justice. That's a nonprofit food justice organization based in Oakland, California. The mission of Planting Justice is to democratize access to affordable, nutritious food by empowering urban residents with the skills, knowledge, and resources they need to maximize organic food production, expand job opportunities, and ensure environmental sustainability in the Bay Area. And Nicole spoke
1: with us about how these issues of access to food and meaningful work relate to the challenges of racism and the prison-industrial complex. She talked about her response
0: and how together we might discover our common humanity. And with that, welcome to Episode 40. Get Organized with Nicole Dean. Thanks, Nicole, for joining us. Uh, we're so excited to have you on. Thanks today. for having me. And uh, so I just want to start by saying, uh, what can you tell us a little bit about your story and what led to your work with Planting Justice?
2: Okay, that's a long story, so I'll try <laughs> to make it short. Um, we, got,
0: hey, we got plenty we of got all, <laughs> all time. Go for it.
2: Okay. Woo. All right. So uh, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, and um, I always... Growing up, I wanted to be a filmmaker. That, I was mm-hmm. really into movies. That's what I wanted to do. Um, and so when I was 18, I moved out to Los Angeles to go to USC film school. Um, and that was my thing. I was going to work in the film industry.
1: That would be so exciting for you if, if <laughs> all of a sudden you're into the film industry and you're going to USC film school. That's amazing.
2: <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, it was cool. It was cool yeah. to get in. I was like, yeah, it, it was exciting to me. Um, not a lot of kids from Nashville end up going to school there. So sure. it was cool. Um I ended up getting hired um right out of college to work at Pixar Animation Studios, which is what brought me to Oakland originally. And it was really like a dream job situation where like if you asked me when I was ten what I wanted to do, I'd be like, I want to work at Pixar. Mm-hmm. Uh, they ride scooters there. <laughs> um, <laughs> and It's true, they do. Uh <laughs> but it was this interesting like time in my life where I got this I thought I had like reached the thing. That I wanted my whole life, because I got my job at Pixar. Um, and really soon after I started working there, I started feeling like really spiritually sick, mm-hmm. like really like it was the weirdest thing I could not explain it, but I felt spiritually sick. Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of it is that I moved to Oakland to take the job at that time. You know, the building I had moved into, I was the only white person in the building. And I would be in Oakland, and I would see a lot of poverty. And I would also see a lot of black folks. And then I would go to Pixar, the Pixar campus, which is, like, right by West Oakland, and walk into campus, and it was, like, a totally different world. Like, everything's manicured and perfect, and everybody's white except the food and the janitorial staff. Mm -hmm. And um, that sense of, like, spiritual sickness continued. Uh, And I guess... The next big thing is that I read in the paper that the police had killed a 17-year-old teenager um, in Oakland. And the story was really, like, upsetting. Like, they left him on the street for a really long time. Um, after he was shot, like, he didn't get any medical attention. That was upsetting to me. Like, I was like, even if, okay, something happened and this officer, you know, made a mistake or whatever, but at least, like, they could get medical medical care, I thought the disregard for this kid's life was really messed up. And I saw that the parents were having like a community meeting that was open on a Saturday and I went and I ended up getting really involved with that struggle for like two years. Um, this kid's name was Alan Blueford, a Skyline High School student, um, yeah, gunned down by an Oakland police officer like what, what 10 y- days before his high school graduation. What year was this? This was in um, May of 2012. Okay. Um, so I worked with that family for about two years, trying to get, first, just transparency, trying to figure out what had happened to their son, but then ultimately trying to get the, you know, the officer off the force. We felt he was a danger to the community. Um, he was a Iraq war veteran um, who seemed like he had, like, had a freaked out PTSD episode when he shot this teenager, and so we felt that it was really important that he not be on the force anymore. Um and that struggle opened my eyes to a lot of stuff in a lot of ways. I mean, first of all, it was the first time in my like, very sheltered, privileged life that I developed real friendships and relationships with working class people of color and got to know like, what their day-to-day experience was like. Um, and that was really transformational for me. And it made me also realize that like I couldn't just organize around this one instance of police violence. Mm-hmm you know, about a year into into being at these meetings every week and trying to, trying to basically get this officer fired, I kind of started realizing, like, even if we get the officer fired, it's not going to change the fact that people are getting, like, stopped and frisked all the time. It's not going to change the fact that people are getting, like, their wages stolen from them at work. It's not going to change the fact that people are being, like, illegally evicted and pushed out of their housing in their neighborhoods. So I got involved in, like, the broader movement, I guess. I... Joined a prison abolition organization called Critical Resistance. I was a member of for three years.
1: Pri- prison abolition organization. Could you yeah. That? That's a new term for sure. for some of us.
2: Um, so basically, yeah. I, prison abolition for short. It's really prison industrial complex abolition. Mm-hmm. Um, and it basically is the philosophy that, or the idea that we should abolish the social function of prisons in our society. The, the sort of, like, accepted function of prisons and police is that we have to keep people safe. Um, the prison abolitionist perspective is that those things don't really keep anybody safe, um, that caging and controlling and punishing people doesn't actually make us safer. The things that make us safer are having access to the things that make life possible, like fresh, healthy food and quality housing, good education, meaningful work, living wage jobs, and... Um, Those are the things that actually can keep us safe, not prisons and police. Um,
1: It addresses the the system, um, the systemic uh, nature of. uh, Yeah. uh, Yeah.
2: Yeah. Like for example, I mean, for example, with the police violence issue, I feel like it's really interesting. A lot of the focus in the last two years, since the Mike Brown and Eric Garner cases, have been around like, oh, let's get every police department body cameras, um, or let's get every police department an independent police commission. And those reforms have been implemented in the Bay Area for a while now, and they don't make anything better. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. the fact is, is that Mm. we spend like 60% of our general fund on the police department. That basically is, the purpose of it is to go around and harass poor people of color and hopefully put them in cages. And as long as that money's being spent on that instead of being spent on our schools and um, housing and good jobs for people, things aren't going to get better. The whole nature of policing is violent. Mm-hmm. Like you're always going to have these instances as long as you have policing in the way that we have it today. Um, well,
0: and as, as you're talking about the um, the prison industrial complex, I mean, there's something that a lot of people don't realize is that there are a number of private prisons in the country where, so like you've got a business model that depends on someone being incarcerated. Absolutely. Like That's how you make your money. And so, of course, that's the end goal. What do we expect to happen, right? <laughs> totally,
2: yeah. That was a lot of our work at Critical Resistance is about um, stopping prison and jail expansion. Um, in California, we have like 35 prisons. We've had this huge explosion of prison and jail construction. Um, and the motto we always say is if, we, if they build it, they will fill it. So if they mm. build a prison, they're going to fill it up. So for every time that they, that they start expanding, like we need to fight back and say no, like we actually don't want to be putting more people in cages, right. we want to be shrinking our prisons, not building more of them. Um, and Critical Resistance is a great organization that people should look into if they're interested in prison abolition, they really um, have advanced the concept of that nationally. Um, my work with them mostly focused on solitary confinement in California prisons. Um, Which is a, we could do a four-hour podcast about that. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I've been doing prison abolition organizing Mm -hmm. for for years. And um, it's kind of like... I ultimately left my job at Pixar, took political work when I could get it, took film industry work when I needed money.
0: Um, (laughs) (laughs) Those are not the same things. Yeah,
2: (laughs) exactly. And I was working a really terrible job that I hated. Um, Not a terrible job, just a job that was bad for me um, at an advertising firm in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to find a way to get out and and spend more time working around this prison issue. Um, And I was so cynical about nonprofits and, and how that stuff works, I was like, no one's really going to pay me to fight prisons. Like, they might say they're paying me to do that, but they're paying me to do something else. Like, maybe the best thing to do is find a job that's, like, really minimal that can I can survive on and then have lots of free time to do this real organizing work. So when I took the job at Planning Justice, it was a street canvassing job. It was, like, stand down the corner um, mm. and ask people to sign up to give money every month. Um, and I was choosing between that and, like, cleaning rich people's houses. I was just like, (laughs) (laughs) eh. I just need a job that will, like, give me time to do what I need to do and pay my bills. And I thought the planting justice thing was interesting. I honestly thought I was super cynical, super – I mean, this is such an example of how God can, like, save you from your own cynicism – but I was like, yeah, these, man, these white people have really found the perfect Bay Area funding pitch. Like, we're building gardens in prison and we're gonna have organic vegetables and we're gonna stop crime. I was like, oh, that's perfect. I'm, you know, white people will love to write checks for that.
0: <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> but the thing about it is, the folks that started Planting Justice are actually have really great politics and it's strategic. Um, the way that they've built this social enterprise model that crosses over these different sectors from the food justice sector to the environmental justice sector to the criminal justice sector is really, really powerful. And yeah, I was like standing on the street asking people for money, Um, but A, that was a really good experience for me. I had to get a lot better at talking to like regular people about the prison industrial complex instead of talking to leftists about it. and I also was on a team of all formerly incarcerated people, which was like, hmm. it's hard to explain what it means to like work now in an organization that's mostly formerly incarcerated people when you've spent years trying to like keep people from dying in prison and trying to get people to cu- come out and come hmm. home. Um, getting to, like, be part of a program where you see people come home and, like, reclaim their lives and get to, like, experience freedom after having that freedom taken away from them is just, like, a very, very powerful Mm. blessing that I'm really grateful for. And it's sort of, like, I joke about it. I still do a lot of other unpaid organizing work outside of my job at Planning Justice. um, But Planning Justice is, like, the keeper of my sanity (laughs) in this empire. Like, it's really difficult... Um prison industrial complex is a really big beast and so it's really special to be part of something that it's small it's a mustard seed but like each person that we can hire when they leave San Quentin stays out like we're, it's an underground railroad to keep mm-hmm. people out of prison.
0: Mm-hmm. So what like on a given day, a given week, what does the work at Planting Justice look like? And what are and what For me or for the organization? For the organization.
2: Sure. Um, wow. In a given day, that's really hard to say. Okay. I'll try I'll try try to put it this way. Um, so planning justices work starts inside San Quentin state prison. So we partner with a program called the insight garden program that has a vegetable garden at San Quentin. And we actually teach a class there to medium security prisoners every Friday, um, teaching them the basics of permaculture, um, and teaching them how to grow and care for this garden. When folks actually graduate from that program and parole out of prison, we hire them at a seventeen fifty an hour starting wage mm. that includes also comprehensive health insurance, vision, yeah. dental, life insurance. Um, it also the program also comes with a lot of wraparound peer support. Um, when you come out of San Quentin and you start working for Planting Justice, you're coming to a workplace where. Sixty percent of the people in the organization have been through the experience that you're going through right now, um, and so more like rather than having it be very like top down, having like a case manager who maybe looks more like me and has a master's degree being the person that's helping people with the transition, it's like folks that have come out helping each other. Um, it's more mentoring. of like yeah, it's like peer yeah. mentoring. Um, And so what we hire folks to do is we have a a couple of programs. We have a grassroots organizing program that educates people in the community about the food system, the education system, and the criminal justice system and gets them involved in supporting our work, whether that's through volunteering or through um, becoming a monthly donor and helping us pay these living wage jobs. Um, We also have a Transform Your Yard program, which is a landscaping team that builds and vegetable gardens for homes Um, so homeowners that can pay afford to pay us will build three backyard vegetable gardens for homeowners that can pay and then for every three we will build one for free in a food apartheid neighborhood Um, we build them for schools churches low-income housing complexes basically anywhere where people don't have access to fresh produce we help them grow it themselves Mm. We also have an education program that works not only in San Quentin, but in three other correctional facilities. We also work in five Oakland public schools. So we build a garden at the school and then we use that garden as a site to teach everything from construction to biology, to culinary arts, to Mm. food justice history. It's really cool. Mm. And the latest thing we've been working on is actually building urban farms. So last year we broke ground on a five acre farm in Elsa Bronte, which is like a 15 minute drive from downtown Oakland. Um, And that's amazing. It's beautiful out there and we've planted it with, 1100 varieties of drought resilient fruit and nut trees. It's going to be like an edible food forest. It's going to be so cool when the trees are grown and it's going to produce a lot of food um, that we can sell at a sliding scale um, and that we can also sell to like vendors and farmers markets and restaurants to help us expand our program and be able to hire Mm -hmm. more people. Mm -hmm. Then just last month we broke ground on our really exciting new project um, in deep East Oakland on East 105th. We have Are in the process of building the Planning Justice Nursery and Aquaponics Farm Incubation Center. So, we've got this huge nursery called Rolling River Nursery that we just acquired. It is the largest and most biodiverse collection of certified organic tree crops in North America. Wow. (laughs) And it's in deep east Oakland. It's in like the (laughs) most disenfranchised community in the United States. (laughs) Like, it's so cool that all those trees are there. So we've got this nursery where people, we can grow food. It's providing a lot of jobs because it has a national distribution where we, slip, we ship trees all over the country. Mm. Um, and then it also we can have a local distribution where neighbors can come in and learn how to plant a fruit tree in their yard, get a fruit tree for $10 that can produce fruit for their family for mm. generations. Mm. Um, We're also going to build an aquaponics farm. We're going to have four greenhouses of uh, recirculating aquaponics technology that saves water while growing over 100,000 pounds of organic produce every year. Wow. So we'll have that aquaponics farm and that nursery on site. We'll also have a sliding scale produce shop where people can come in and buy trees and fresh produce at a super reduced price. They can use their snap card, um, use food stamps to get the food. And it's provided, we've already hired five formerly incarcerated people from the neighborhood um, to help us build it. So it's already something that is making a difference in that those are five people that didn't have jobs before. And now they're doing this work. Um, and we hope that it's going to expand from there.
1: So in listening to you talk about um, about your work and, and the work of planning justice, I keep hearing words of... Like faith that come through that <laughs> you, know, you use words like mustard seed and you yeah. use words like you know you, you you reference God a couple times. Does this come? Does that? Does faith play into your work? And if so, how?
2: Yeah, um, I don't think I'd be doing any of the stuff that I do if I weren't a follower of Jesus, mm. um, and following Jesus came first. Um, that came from me in high school. I had a really amazing youth pastor named Dixon Kinzer, um, who's a friend of Mark Skindretz. Okay. Um, he brought us out to do like retreats with Mark oh, when I was in high school. Okay. Instead of doing like mission trips, we would do like Jesus Dojo in San Francisco. Oh, nice. Um, <laughs> nice. so you can get a sense of the kind of politics sure. that we're coming through. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. even in that early Christian education.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, but I, yeah, um, so hard to like explain. <laughs> so, so like right. put this huge thing into like a few sentences. Um, yeah, uh, I'm an organizer because I'm a follower of Jesus because I think that's that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Like, we're supposed to be co-creators in building the kingdom of God here on Earth, right? Mm-hmm. That's like that's what it is, uh, and that's what organizing is. It's just like working together with other people to try to make the world more like god's dream for humanity and less like a (laughs) hellhole where people are like getting shot and homeless for no reason um and i'm definitely a prison abolitionist because i'm a follower of jesus i don't serve a vengeful punishing god that would put people in solitary confinement for 40 years and not let Mm. them see sunlight or be experience any human touch Mm. i don't believe that that's i don't serve a god like that right um and what's really been really beautiful for me and what's been a blessing about finding planting justice is, like I said, um, this work is really hard, uh, particularly working around the prison system. You're dealing, you're going up against institutions that are so huge and you have so little power within the prison system. Anyone that has an incarcerated loved one can tell you. you I mean, you have no power. They will, like, mm-hmm. cavity search you if you try to visit. Like, they there's so much like humiliation and um, and just uh, disempowerment that that's a central part of that pro- process. And so getting to work at an organization that is gathering everyday people, like people I meet on the street outside of grocery stores, to help us basically say like, we don't, uh, we want things to be better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't want to lock up millions of people in cages. Um, and so let's, let's give $15 a month to this organization and provide living wage jobs for people and see what that does. I mean, California has the highest recidivism rate in the country. Mm. Seven out of 10 people who get released from a California prison are back inside in less than a year.
1: Less than a year. In
2: less than a year. Seven out of 10. Mm. Um and it's used as justification to keep locking people up and keep locking people up instead of realizing like oh this is failed policy this fails 70% of the time right, we should right. maybe try something different <laughs>
0: something's
1: broke
2: yeah yeah <laughs> totally um and so like you know you can go as a like anti-prison mm-hmm. organizer and like beat your head against the wall and mm-hmm. say like this policy fails 70% of the time stop spending my tax dollars on it you can say that over and over and over but the conversation becomes different when you just start doing the work yourself
0: Mm.
2: the real work of helping people transition out of prison and stay home and stay free and become Mm. like people that everyone should look up to because they're serving their community every day Mm -hmm. um And so like, I went up to to Sacramento to talk to the board of state and community corrections last year. They were giving out half a billion dollars in jail construction funds um, to counties all over California. And the literal justification that the board gave for why they were spending that money in that way was that um, there's about 7,000 people that are gonna be released based on a a proposition that was passed by the voters um, to reclassify certain offenses and let people out early. And they said, well, we know these 7,000 people are going to get released in the next year, and we know that preventing recidivism is difficult or impossible, and we need some place for these people to go. So we need to construct county jails for them to get locked up in when they when they inevitably come out and reoffend, right? Mm. Um, and so to be able to get up with Planting Justice and say, hi, we're Planting Justice, our budget is less than 0.02% of what you're about to spend building more jails, and we have a 0% recidivism rate. So it's not true that preventing recidivism is impossible. It's not true. You just lied, (laughs) and we just want (laughs) to make that really clear, and maybe you should start thinking about other ways to invest that money to stop recidivism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, getting to be uh, part of a place that it's, it's small. You know, we've, we've supported 20 people so far. We've 20 people coming out of San Quentin in the last five years. Um, there's Like I said, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people that are locked up in California, and we're not able to provide thousands and thousands of jobs yet. Uh, but to even get to support 20 people and see their lives be totally transformed um, is very faith-restoring for me in a way that sometimes prison work can be challenging in that way.
0: <laughs> right, right. So, um, okay, so planting justice, obviously very centered around food and good food and providing jobs for people. And it's also connected with, uh, the prison system and the problem of that. Uh, we often would look at those things, particularly when we don't, don't know, don't have really tight connection to either of those issues specifically. Um, we might look at them and say, oh, that's two different things. Mm -hmm. So why is it not two different things?
2: I think our, our co-founders, um, Gavin Raiders and Hale Zandi, are really kind of genius. They, they both came out of the, the anti-war movement um, and have really strong like, anti-imperialist politics, which I appreciate. Um, <laughs> but they uh, part, of, part of their idea for planning justice is um, that the reason that we have war in the Middle East is because we're really dependent on oil. Um, and part of the reason we're really dependent on oil is because of the way our food system works um, and the fact that most of the food that is grown is not distributed locally. It's like shipped and, and driven all over the country and all over the world. It's packaged with lots of plastic. Um, it's not a sustainable food system. It, it needs a lot of oil to keep going. And so they were like, well, what if instead of trying to knock on people's doors, tell, telling them to stop the war, in Iraq, where people are like, "What are you talking about? I'm cooking dinner. Like, I don't know. I don't know about the war in Iraq. Um, what if we engage people in transforming the food system um, and tried to create something that was more sustainable, that didn't rely on this thing that's causing all this um, strife and violence in our world, and also just worked better and enabled people to have better access to the food that keeps us healthy?" Um, and they started doing that work, and. And then they realized that the, as they started hiring people, um, I think Halle had started volunteering at the Insight Garden Program in San Quentin, like working in the garden with prisoners. And it, something clicked um, that we should provide jobs when people come out. That would make a huge difference in people's mm. ability to stay mm-hmm. out.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: and they were really, really right about that. Having not just a living wage job where you can really depend on your paycheck and you don't need to have a side hustle going to make your ends meet, um, but also to be doing meaningful work in your community is such, is such a powerful incentive to, to do the really, really hard work that it takes to transition home from a place like San Quentin State Prison. I've heard a lot of guys that we work with get emotional talking about like building vegetable gardens in neighborhoods where they're used to sell drugs that killed people in their community, you know? Mm. I brought poison in this community for years and now I'm back and I'm bringing medicine, I'm bringing food, I'm providing, I'm turning things around. Um, Yeah, and so it's really, really beautiful, um, a beautiful bringing together of different ideas.
1: Time after time, Jesus says things like, love your neighbor. He says, love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. He tells a parable that says, whenever you cared for someone who was hungry, naked, or in prison, you cared for me. Now, you you don't have to be some kind of expert biblical scholar to get this stuff. Love your neighbor. Pretty simple, right? Sure, until it's not. Love your neighbor. This is hard work. Loving your neighbor means advocating for the one who is a victim of police violence. It means standing against unjust systems that warehouse people for profit. It means doing the hard work of advocating for neighbors who struggle to find nutritious food, housing, education, meaningful work, and living wage jobs. Love your neighbor means growing a food forest in the city of Oakland for crying out loud. Love your neighbor. It it can mean getting belittled and mocked as someone who is out of touch with the way the world works when in reality, you are more and more in touch than ever. Nicole is a community organizer. Jesus was a community organizer. He organized around love and that can be brutal and hard work but it is also the kind of work that changes the world forever. It helps us and others to experience life that is truly life. It helps us and our communities to experience a
0: little bit of heaven right here and right now. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. And special thanks to Nicole Dean for sharing some of her time with us while we were in California.
1: Yeah, such a great conversation. It was great to to hear her voice again.
0: Absolutely. And I think pretty important stuff that we can uh, continue Mm -hmm. to be chewing on for a while. Um, Stay tuned in the coming weeks uh, with the podcast for conversations around what it means to ask questions and how we can continue discovering and learning as people of faith. Uh, And also look for interviews with author and activist Shane Claiborne uh, and another one with Tim Otto, author of the book Oriented to Faith. And before we end today, just a quick reminder that just
1: save the date for May 7th. Drew G.I. Hart will be there, and he'll be our guest of the next Sandbox live event. He'll talk about his new book, The Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism.
0: For that and other things going on in the Sandbox, be sure to sign up for our mailing list at sandboxcooperative.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.
1: And as always, be sure to share this podcast with someone who might like it. There is always more room in the sandbox. Until next time, we'll see you. Bye.
2: Please watch your step as you exit the sandbox.